We're in this season at church where we're thinking about what we want to do as a family, and the theme we've been looking at is doing the stuff, doing the stuff that Jesus says we should do. It's really simple. Let's, let's actually do the stuff. Let's not just talk about it. Let's not just think about it. Let's not sing, just sing about it. Let's not just give to it. Let's not just cry over it. Let's actually do it. And what I wanted to do today, looking at 1 Corinthians 13, is saying at the heart of doing the stuff is love. Like uh, the very essence of our faith and of the life that God calls us to live and what G- the stuff we're to do is the stuff of love, right? And um, that's important. That said, if you've been in church a while, you've probably heard endless, endless sermons on love and, uh, and exhortations to love and challenges to love and all the rest of it. Um, with, and sometimes the problem with those things is um, they just leave you feeling guilty and uh, at all the failures in your life to love and maybe a little confused about what love looks like and what it is. So what I'm going to try and do today is a, a very, um, uh, just an overview of a biblical conception of love that is really practical and set us on a path to learning how to receive and give love. And uh, that's what we're going to do. Now, if you are interested in where we're going... The slides are all of, and there's an outline on our app under the sermon notes page. You can download the app. You can follow along. If you've got the app, I sent out a notification, an invitation to come to church. It also had the, all the slides there. Um, and if you want uh, more copies of it, you can get them. This material is largely taken from a fabulous little book called The Three Colors of Love. And we have more of these. And if you're a small group or a group of friends or some of you want to get together and think about what this really looks like in practice. Uh, This book is full of resources and ideas and a way to assess your own capacity to receive and give love. Uh, It's like a workbook on how to learn how to be somebody who gives and receives love. So that's what we're going to do today, if that sounds all right. Let's just pray first now. Uh, Lord God, uh, I ask you this morning that even now, You will increase our capacity to receive love and you will increase our capacity uh, to give love to others. And we really need your help with this because we find all sorts of ways to sabotage our own receiving and giving of love. And uh, we'd rather not do that. So help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here is a fundamental truth that is true of you and of me, that is that we are created for connection. We are, we are absolutely relational beings. Uh, it is the most important thing about us is that we are relational. We're made for this. We're made for each other. If we don't have connection, we die. Uh, I'll just pause and listen to the rain for a moment. Cindy. Yeah, Wow. How about that, hey? We should all just go outside and run around in the rain. And All right. So um, it's quite exciting, isn't it, when you haven't had it for a while? Uh, we are created for connection. And uh, if, if, I want to exp- if you want to think about this, we're actually created by connection. 
right? So each one of us actually has a physical life. We come into existence because of a relational connection between our parents. And we grow in connection. And at the heart of that connection is love. Our, our capacity to um, flourish as human beings is all about our capacity for relationships. And the Bible's really, really, really clear about this. Um, here's what Jesus says to his followers. If we're thinking about doing the stuff, this is what Jesus says. Uh, and it is a new command. Um, it, other religious systems, other philosophical systems, other ethical frameworks all have different things they valued. But until Jesus came along, until Christianity arrived in the world, um, no one else said that love was the absolute central defining thing in all of reality. And that's what Jesus says. He says, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Uh, by this... Everyone will know that you are my apprentices, my disciples, if you love one another. So, so a disciple is someone who does the stuff. How are people going to know we're people who do the stuff? Because we love in the way of Jesus. That's quite simple. That said, you, you, you highlight all of that and you go, yes, love, connection. But isn't it true that there is a, a, a deep epidemic of loneliness in our culture? And uh, the epidemiologists and the health professionals will tell us that loneliness has the same negative consequences on your physical health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. If you look at health outcomes, uh, disease, longevity, loneliness is a killer. And it's all around us. And one of, here's a great problem in church sometimes. And I don't know what your experience of church is like. I hope this doesn't describe how you're experiencing church even today. And we work very hard for it not to be the case. But sometimes churches can be the most low, some of the most lonely places in the world. Why? Well, we, we come in with such high expectations for connection. And then they're not met. And you can be, there's no place quite as lonely as being in the middle of a crowd where everyone else seems to be experiencing deep connection, and you're not. Uh, when I, growing up, I became a follower of Jesus in Cape Town. My family weren't Christian, and I used to go along to church uh, as, a, as a teenager and then through university, and I'd take myself off to church. Let me tell you, uh, my, my loneliest times, I used to play in the band up front, and I was really keen and involved. My, my, typically, my loneliest times were I'd, I'd play up front in the band in the morning service, and then I'd go outside, you know, go to the hall, and we'd sit around and have a cup of tea, and those were my loneliest times because no one would talk to me. I was just like the teenager who played in the band and everyone else was in their families and everyone else was hanging out and, and I was just me hanging out there with a cup of tea going, gosh, it'd be really nice if someone talked to me. And it only got worse on Christmas Day because Christmas, our family were quite disengaged and uh, so Christmas Day, I'd hop on my bicycle, I'd cycle to church and I'd play all morning in the band and then everyone would disappear to go and have Christmas with their families and I'd be like, huh, would it be nice if someone talked to me? That's oh, weird, hey? So church, what church can do sometimes is raise our expectations. And they're, they're God-given expectations. We're made for this. And then you just come and you go, oh. And, you can, and, and that's, that's really not good, is it? Uh, and one of the things that I, in this service, that, that has been delightful to see over the last few years is I don't think, I don't think that happens here. 
the way we've architected the building and the furniture and the morning tea, I hope, I think, I pray that at least when you meet here, you're going to establish, you're going to have some sense of a meaningful connection with another human being. Now, of course, that's just the start. There's so much more, but it's a start, right? So at the, very lo- at, the very, at the very least, as a church, we shouldn't make loneliness worse by shining a great big spotlight on it and our failure to meet it. But at the best, it can be a place, it should be, it must be. Under God, it has to be a place where our deep needs for connection can be met. And, and they can be met for anyone, not just people who are like us. You know, I mean, one of the reasons no one at church talked to me when I was a teenager was it was all families, and I was, I was a solo teenager, and I, you just weren't noticed. And so we can have people in our midst who just don't get noticed because they're not like us. And, and in churches, no one should ever not get noticed. No one should ever leave without a deep, meaningful connection uh, that, that touches, like, the core of us, right? Uh, and I don't know, how, that, that, that's what God wants from us. That's what love is. Um, which raises the question, um, why, why is love so hard? Because it is, isn't it? I mean, it's both wonderful. But actually, it's quite hard to love people. Um, it just is. Even if our best efforts fail. I don't know if you've ever had the experience in a friendship or a marriage or a workplace where you've tried to reach out to someone to love them and you just seem to have made it worse. Um, I, I'm quite good at that. Uh, you just seem to make it worse. You go, why? How did that happen? Or you go into a situation with all the best intentions in the world and you just fail to execute on your plan. I'm now going to be other person-centered. And as Mike Tyson's coach, Mike Tyson, the boxer, his coach famously said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> and isn't that true of love? Like you go, I've got to, I'm going to be a loving person. And then you walk out the door and life punches you in the face. And suddenly you're like, I'm just surviving. I actually don't have capacity to care for anyone else. It's just about me getting through this right now. And uh, it's hard. It's hard in church. Now, not this church, because we're all lovely and easy to love. But I, I hear in other churches, it can be hard to love people in church. Um, why? Well, we, one of the problems, at least, is we start with a secular romantic understanding of love, and we project this onto God, and then our concept of God becomes secular romantic. So we're confused about what love is and what it isn't. One of the things, one of the confusions is, um, we confuse love with desire, right? So when, in our culture, typically, when we talk about love, I love you, what I mean is I desire you. But of course, love and desire are different. Think about chocolate. I love chocolate. But what am I really saying? I desire to eat and consume chocolate. I don't actually love the chocolate. I'm not doing what is best for the chocolate. <laughs> I'm eating it. When we talk about, I love you, uh, in our secular romantic concept, what we mean is I have a very strong desire for you and I want to consume you in whatever way because of the strength of my desires. And, and that's not love. It's great. Desire is not a... Pro- I'm, not, I'm not knocking desire. I'm just saying let's be careful about how we define and think of love because our problem comes when we get confused. So the secular romantic thing says love is essentially desire. And what flows from that is a confusion around uh, thoughts, feelings, and behavior. 
So a secular romantic understanding of love goes like this. I have a feeling, a desire. So I like Fred. Okay, I have a desire to be a friend of Fred's, to reach out to Fred, to care for Fred. Okay. So then what happens after I have this feeling? Well, then I might think about how I can get that desire met or express that feeling. And then what happens after I've thought about it? I might act on it. Okay. Uh, now, of course, if you're a teenager, you often miss that middle uh, step. <laughs> so you go, I have a feeling, I act on it. I have a, actually, our whole culture tends to do that. I have a feeling, I act on it. But typically, I have a feeling, a desire, I think about how I'm going to get that met, and then I do it. Okay. That's, not, that's, a, that's a secular romantic understanding of love. The, the Bible, the Christian view of love is different. How do you think the Christian view of love goes? What's the first step? What's the first thing you do? If you're going to love someone as a Christian, what's the first thing you're going to do? Ah, to be loved by God. Yes, that's, that's pre-step, but important. We'll get to that. Stealing my narrative suspense there. You're way ahead of us. So take those three, thoughts, feelings, actions. What's going to come first in a Christian conception and practice of love? Wanting the other person to do well be better, yeah? Uh, okay, so what? let's think about that. Um, how do you know what's going to be good for them? How do you know what's going to help them be better? You've got to think about it. So the Christian conception starts with how we think. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, so as, a, as a Christian, we've got to go, I've got to think... Fred is a human being made in the image of God who deserves and is made for love and connection. And God has put me on this world to love people. That's the starting point. You think about everyone. I, I don't wait for my feelings to arrive. I think about it. Okay. And what, do you, what happens next? So now I've thought, Fred, Fred walks in the door. Maybe Fred is... Um, I don't know. Maybe Fred is just someone who doesn't fit naturally here. Maybe they have an intellectual handicap. Maybe they, uh, they come from a different culture, speak a different language. Maybe they're just awkward relationally. I don't wait to feel like I love Fred. I go, there is Fred. Fred is made in the image of God. Fred, Fred is as worthy of love as I am, and God calls me to love Fred. Okay, those are my thoughts. What happens next? Feelings or actions? Actions. What do I do? I then do exactly what Byron said. I go, okay, I'm going to figure out what can I do to help Fred flourish? How can I meet Fred's needs? And then what happens? Well, the feelings come. It's when Jesus says um, that we are to lay down our lives, that, 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 that life comes as we lay down our lives for others. That's what he means. I think about the needs of others. I act towards meeting those needs. And you know what? That's what fills me with joy. More better is it to give than to receive, Jesus says. So that's the dynamic, right? Now, of course, that is, a, that is the exact opposite of the secular romantic concept of love, which is I've got to feel my... I, I, it's all about my desire and my feelings. Um, how many of you... It's, well, this is the dominant way we think about life. How many of you have ever sabotaged your attempts at getting fit by waiting until you feel like going to the gym and getting some exercise. 
Yeah, yeah. We all do. Like you sit around waiting to feel like I should do this hard thing. I, I used to, like kids do that with schoolwork all the time. You might do that at work. If you've got a difficult project, you think you've got to do at work, you, you wait until you feel like doing it. That's a recipe for really, you know, staying unfit and unproductive and probably unemployed. Um, you think about what needs to be done, you do it, and the joy comes when you've done it. Like, that's love. It's not very romantic. All in favor, say aye. It's, a, it's, a, it's not romantic. It's, but that's love. So we've got to work very hard with that, right? Um, and the Bible goes even more and says more profoundly than this, and this is where we get to Sally's point, you see 1 John says God is love. Uh, it's not that God has an attribute of love. It's not that love is one thing that God does, but the very essence of God is this thinking, doing, feeling, being who is this way of being. Like that is, uh, in all of human history and religion, this sets Christianity apart, this conception of God. It is remarkable. And I think in the church we don't think about this often enough. Um, but here it is. He goes on, the, the letter uh, John writes, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. That's extraordinary, right? Uh, we live in love. That's, and God lives in us because God is love. And here's the thing, right? When God expresses his love towards us, he doesn't give us something. He gives us himself. This is dramatic, right? He's not, and isn't that what we all long for in the end? You know, I mean, love is giving yourself to somebody else so that they can connect with you. They can overcome their fundamental aloneness in the universe and flourish as a human being. Love is not giving gifts. Uh, gifts are only valuable if they are actually an expression of you to somebody else. Like it's giving yourself. And, it, and, and, that, and that costs, right? Lo one of the reasons love is hard is that love comes at a price. The essence of the Christian understanding of love is that we give ourselves away. There is a price to be paid, but paradoxically it's the path to a fulfilling, challenging, and happy life. We live with a scarcity mindset. And the scarcity mindset goes like this. I've only got so much of life and capacity myself. I need my needs to be met. I get lonely. I'm struggling. I want connection. I've got to hold on. I've got to, I've got to make sure my needs are met. And, and like love and connection, is a, it's a zero-sum game. So if you get a whole lot of love, I'm not going to get love. And the price that we're to pay is to say, no, no, actually... The way God has organized the world is actually when I give my life away, I actually find my life. That's extraordinary, right? But that's it. It's a, love is self-giving in the interests of connection and making each other whole. And uh, it's incredibly profound. It comes from exactly this, our understanding of God, that God is a community of self-giving love. Again, this is what makes Christianity different in all world religions. God is not a solitary being. Say, if you, if you ever discuss, have a discussion with a Muslim friend, 
the difference between uh, the conception of the deity in Islam and in Christianity is Allah is one, one being. Now, in one being, there cannot be love. A, a single person can express love. Love can be an attribute of theirs, but they can't be love because a solo being, a thing, can't love itself. It's just a, the, the solo. You need an other to love. And so the genius of Christianity is that God is a community of self-giving love. Uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, where the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, the Father is not the Son. It's a really helpful little way to conceptualize the doctrine of the Trinity, if you've never thought of it. And if you have thought of it, here it is. Um, The practical implication of the doctrine of the Trinity which is at the heart of the Christian view, is that it shows us why, well, it shows us what, what ultimate reality is about. Ultimate reality is a community of self-giving love. Everything else needs to serve that. So I'll give you an example. Uh, you, can, there's a, a, um, you can think about your work. Uh, let's think about your work. How do you find meaning and purpose and value in your work? So say you make, I don't know, okay, we don't have a manufacturing industry here. I was going to use the example. Say you make widgets. Let's not. I'm looking at Kevin. So say you're an auditor. Okay, you're an auditor. What, what is a Christian vision of being an auditor? Okay, well, you can start to think about it. You can say, well, do you know what? People need to know that if they're going to invest their money in a company, that the company's not lying, right? That'd be good. Why is that good? Well, because if I invest my money in your company and you've been lying about what's actually going on in your company, I might lose an enormous amount of money. Okay, so then what happens if I lose an enormous amount of money? Well, actually, you know what? That's, that's going to make it so much harder for me to flourish as a person in community. Maybe I'm going to lose the family home. Maybe, maybe the, the stress is going to cause my marriage to break up. Maybe, um, you know, the, the, I don't know, the orthodontic work that my kid was going to have, they can't have, and they're going to have crooked teeth all their life because you didn't do your job as an auditor. So an auditor can be done, you can do the job of auditing well, because actually, you know what, it's, it's designed to create a whole complex web of an economic and a, a business system that enables us to flourish in relationships. And you can understand, if, if a company is built on a crock of lies, then that's going to be bad for everyone. And, and then someone, you know, if the auditor doesn't do their job and the management crooks the books, uh, cooks the books uh, maybe the whole company goes bankrupt and everyone loses their jobs. And then where are the relationships if you don't have work? Because work is essential to our dignity and value as persons made in relationship. And if your business goes bust, guess, guess where, where's a great place where we experience life-giving community and love? Well, it's in our workplaces because we work with others. So you can start to see, and I'm just picking on auditing, but you can do this work for any, any sphere of activity and you can start to think of it through the lens of a community of self-giving love and life is about flourishing in relationships. That's how you start to think about your work. Now, uh, let's think a little more about a biblical concept of love. And here it is. You might have been wondering what these three colors are. Um, the three colors uh, in, in this conception of God, um, we'll just go back to this. The colors represent uh, the white light. The other thing the Bible says is that God is light. Now, white light is made up of three constituent colors, red, green, and blue. And all colors need to be present for the light to be white. 
The absence of those three colors is darkness. Uh, and any, you remove the red uh, and you get just the mix of the green and the blue. It's not white. The only way you get white light is when all three colors are present. And so uh, you, can, you can conceptualize God in the same way. For God to be present as light, uh, he is present in all three of his persons. You can then think, if you then take that idea of God as light, you put love in at the center where God is. You say, well, God is love. And how do you find uh, the, the fullness of God's love? Well, the biblical concept of God's love is made up of three constituent concepts, all of which need to be present for something to be love. And the concepts are justice, truth, and grace. The Hebrew words tzedakah, emunah, and chesed. Here's a, uh, uh, this is all in the slides you can look at, but just to give you an example, you may think, where do I find that? Well, when you go through, for example, the Psalms, the Psalms are full of descriptions of God's character where it combines those three words. Now, the English translators translate them differently, and that's a little confusing. But, you know, so Psalm 33, the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful, emunah, so truthful, faithful, does what he says he'll do, is always consistent in all he does. The Lord loves tzedakah, righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing chesed. Uh, and now the, the translator translates the word chesed, love, but actually uh, you can run an argument, and I think it's very convincing that, that the, those three Hebrew words together combine to be what we understand to be love. Uh, and it's enormously powerful. When you start to think of this, you start to think of justice is not a disinterested, I'll give you what you deserve, deserve. but tzedekah, justice in the world, is about taking sides in the world, acting to bring about justice, particularly for the marginalized, the vulnerable, the poor, and the oppressed. It's about making things right. Justice, biblically, is not standing back and weighing up the scales. That's, that's one element of it. But the essence of biblical justice is about making the world right. That's justice. You got, and, and for an act to be loving, you've got to act in the world to make things right, particularly for the vulnerable and the powerless and the poor. But then you, for an act to be loving, it also needs truth, faithfulness. That is, uh, it has to correspond with the way the world really is. And, and, and an act has to have uh, a faithfulness that you, you do what you say you will do. And it's truthful. It, it represents and captures the way the world really is. And it needs to be uh, chesed of grace, unconditional covenantal acceptance, compassionate uh, love. Now, uh, it's a really helpful model. You say, how do I know what to do in the world? Well, I need to act with justice, grace, and truth. And this is one of the reasons love is hard, because sometimes, uh, because we each will typically have a, a particular tendency to act in one or two of these ways, but we typically won't find it easy or natural to act in all three. Let me illustrate. Uh, you may be somebody who is highly motivated by justice and truth. Well, you see the way the world should be, you make commitments, you honor those commitments, you do what is right, 
And then you're motivated towards justice, so you have, to, you have to fix up the world, you have to treat everyone the same, you have to act on behalf of everybody, and you're really good at that. But you're not so good at grace. Like, what do you do with the person who's a mess, who lets you down, who's the perpetrator of oppression? Well, there's no room for them in your world. Is there? Because it's about justice and truth. And so actually justice and truth without grace is merciless. And that's not right either. Maybe, maybe you're somebody who's really big on grace. I just go to the exact opposite. Or maybe you're just, you, have, you are just so accepting of everyone and everything. Yeah, that's a wonderful strength. Like, that's great. But if you don't have a, a corresponding drive to change the world and make what is wrong right, then your grace and acceptance is actually weak, powerless, ineffectual. So, so we need all three, justice, grace, and truth. Now I'm going to keep going. Uh, you can map this out uh, against the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, we're jumping ahead. The, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And if you're a keen Bible scholar, you'll notice I've changed the punctuation here. I think Galatians 5. So the original Greek doesn't have punctuation in it. No spaces, it just all runs together. So you can punctuate it for the English like this. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Colon, let's unpack what love is. Love is joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the author of this book, Christian Schwartz, who's a genius in my view, does a wonderful job of mapping these fruit of the Spirit against uh, these three fundamental Hebraic elements of love. So... Um, you know, uh, the green tzedakah, justice, is constitute, can be thought of as the virtues of patience and goodness and peace. Truth is faithfulness, self-control, joy, and then grace, gentleness, kindness. And, if you, and you can see on the outside of the circle, if you have justice and truth without grace, you're merciless. If you have justice and grace without truth, you're, you practice deception. And if you have... Um, uh, grace and truth without justice, you perpetrate injustice in the world. So what you want is all of them. And you want all of the fruit of the Spirit working in your life because that's how uh, we love. But wait, there's more. This model is brilliant. So here we get to our Bible reading. And uh, you may want to download again because this takes some thinking, right? So this is where we come to 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. And you can actually map all those attributes of love on this same pattern, right? Do you see how it works? So, um, uh, you know, so uh, love always protects, right? Here we go. So this is the justice bit that you're bringing justice in the world. Uh, and it's about protection, not delighting in evil. The positive side is actually opposing evil. Uh, it's not self-seeking. It's other-seeking. It keeps no records of wrong because you know what? It makes peace. That's part of bringing justice. It always perseveres. And then you come here to the fruit faithfulness end. It trusts. 
it, it, it lasts, it's never rude. It's not easily angered because, you know, you're self-controlled. Can you see how genius this is? Like the lack of rudeness and lack of anger all comes into this self-control. It rejoices with the truth. And then it brings in all these things it's, uh, it hopes. If I was clever, I would have worked out a way to rotate this so you don't have to sort of turn your head and go, okay, so it's kind, it's not proud, it doesn't boast, it doesn't envy. And you see that, that very simply, love is about justice, truth, and grace, and then it's about the fruit of the Spirit, God working in us and acting out in the way that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, that's really helpful, at least for me. may not be for you, but I find it really, really helpful. Um, well, what does that mean? Um, and it's interesting, right? We talked about this last week. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 is, or well, 1 Corinthians is written to a divided church, full of conflict, full of pride, full of sexual immorality, full of infighting and bitterness and division. And I mean, they're just a mess, you know, much like most churches. Uh, finding the, the Corinthians are finding love extremely hard. And smack bang in the middle of this, Paul drops this classic text of 1 Corinthians. And so I offer this to you because I think this is doing the stuff. And doing the stuff involves us thinking about how we live this out. And, uh, and here's the final piece. A final piece. When I say final piece, don't get your hopes up. Um, um, if you look at this little picture, uh, and you imagine this is the center, right? So this is the... This is the center. This is perfect love they're moving towards. Are these people moving in the same or opposite directions? I heard someone say under their breath the same. Same direction but different ways? If they keep going across the center, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, they're moving in opposite directions, but in the same direction. Isn't that right? So they're moving. So this fellow's moving here to the center. This fellow's moving here. They're both moving in the same direction towards the center, but actually they're moving in completely opposite directions. Okay, so what does that mean? What, what matters in the journey of learning how to love is that you understand your starting point. Like where you start is massively important for the direction that you move in. Okay? How do you think that how would you how do you think that applies to this little model of love that we've developed? Well, um, you may be somebody who uh, is starting over here. Right? You are somebody who's really good on grace and, uh, and pretty good at truth. Uh, what do you need? If you're going to become somebody who loves others, what do you need more of in your life? Justice. You need God to, and you need to work with God to learn how to actually move into the world to serve others practically. That's awesome, right? You need more green. Okay, now... Matilda over here, she's really good at justice, pretty good at truth. What does she need in her life? 
a hairdresser. <laughs> Bit of truth there, yeah, yeah, thank Mr. Truth, yeah. Uh, do you like my new haircut? What? Um, you paid for that? <laughs> Don't worry, it'll grow out. Um, she needs more grace. Here's what often happens in churches, right? We assume that everybody needs more of what we think we value most. So if I'm really big on the, you know, old old little Fred down here is really big on grace. And he's like, yes, I, so you do what we're naturally good at and everybody should have more grace. You go, no, 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 no. Actually, Fred needs more green. He needs more justice. So for, for Fred to grow, he needs exactly the opposite of what Matilda needs to grow in love. Does that make sense? really important in churches. I think one of the reasons churches struggle, by the way, and any organization, is we, uh, we don't understand this, the, the fundamental issue of our different starting points and the fact that therefore, on your spiritual and personal journey and on my spiritual and personal journey, we might actually need exactly the opposite thing. And you might be very, very frustrated with me because you might be going, Mark, you, you, know, you need to learn more justice. And, and you're not but you're just projecting from your own starting point onto me. And, and I might be going, you need more grace. And no, actually, you need, you, do you see how it works out? So each of us has to figure out our starting points and then figure out, okay, Lord, to do the stuff of love, how do I learn to do that? How do I actually get better at this? So here's the question, what is your starting point? <laughs> What do you need to get better at doing? Because love's not a feeling, right? I'm I'm not saying you've got to generate feelings here. I'm saying think objectively about your life. Think about your starting point. And if you want help, here is a little book that can help you. We can order more of them. It's actually quite cool. It's got a little survey. You can get other people to answer questions about yourself. Um, And actually, this one is just answering yourself. And just to get you thinking... Um, or you could get others. You could ask others around you. Say, uh, you know, I was in your small group this week, you could go around and say, well, you know, Mark was talking about this. Where do you reckon I need to grow? You know, that'd be an interesting question, wouldn't it? Um, how do we do it? Well, this is where it, this is the, the power comes from here, and this goes right back to Sally's point. Um, how do we get the, the energy, the motivation, the power to change to learn to love well the bible says we love because he first loved us so the starting point for all of us while we is different the the act the fundamental starting point is the same which is we need to receive god's love for us his perfect love and god's love for you might come in the form of grace maybe you are somebody who just battles with shame and guilt maybe hey this is not how I would think about life, but maybe you're sitting here feeling just crushed by all your inadequacies right now. Every, you know, everything I've been talking about makes you just feel like a failure as a Christian. Yeah, oh, I'm such a worm. Okay? And maybe what you need to do is just receive more of God's grace. God, God, love, God you need to experience and let God's blue love flow into you. She's not a worm. You're, you're, I mean, you're, you're, you're loved unconditionally. If you never change at all, 
that won't change God's love for you. So just, right? God loves you just the way you are. When he died for you, all your, uh, all your potential was unrealized. Um, maybe you're somebody, on the other hand, who um, is prone to live in deception. You struggle with the truth. Denial is a much more comfortable place. You just, you know, you can't tell the truth about yourself. You can't reveal yourself to others. You don't want to face the truth about who you are, who other people are. It's all very, it's all polish. You polish the externals, and there's no truth. And maybe what you need is, is to look at. God experience God's love for you as truth and say, you know, you are, let me give you the bad news, you are so bad that Christ had to die for you. Like That's the unvarnished truth that you're a mess and I'm a mess and we're a mess. So maybe you need an experience, but you say, oh, that's terrible. How's that love? Well, love is, God exposes the truth and then he brings in the bread and he says, but I'm, you're so loved that he was glad to die for you. So, you know, you're loved. And the truth is you're a mess, but the truth is also God is utterly, totally faithful to you in your mess. So quit denying, quit minimizing, quit lying, quit pretending about who you are, about who others are, about the state of your marriage, the state of your life, the state of your church, the state of your health, the state of whatever. Maybe you need more faithfulness that that the truth is when you say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Maybe you, need, maybe you need to experience God's green. Maybe you're broken and struggling and hurting and you just need God to act in his, your life to make things right. Receive that. You know, um, it's that time of year. Love is all around us. It actually is. It actually is. God is all around God's love, we live, the Bible says we live and move and have our being in God. So here's something you might do, right? You could take little post-it notes and all around the house and everywhere you are, you could just stick a little note to remind yourself you are loved. You are loved. And whenever you see that note, just thank you, God, that you love me. Or I'll give you another trigger to appreciate God's love. Every time you stop at a traffic light, just remind yourself, I'm loved. I'm loved by God. Like that's it. Traffic lights stop, I'm loved. It'll help with your frustration and road rage. Um, it'll also change you, right? Well, you're loved. Like, uh, how are you at receiving that? We love because He first loved us. This is this infinite resource of justice, grace, and truth to flood into our lives and then flow through us so that we can love others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you love us and now help us as, a, as individuals in our families, in our friendships, in our workplace, workplaces, in our community and city to be a group of people who love the way you loved because you first loved us. And may this city know that we are your followers because of this. 
Show us this week practical ways where we can grow. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing again and worship this God whom we love. And then uh, John will dismiss us and we'll have some morning tea.